News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I spend a lot of time talking with you in the morning, right? And every once in a while, I think, oh, sure, it would be nice for me to have someone to talk to around here. I talk to John Strait at 5.30, but then he gets busy. It'd be nice if I could have somebody else to talk to. Well, guess what? We have found someone, and I am going to introduce you to our new best friend here in the morning, here on Mornings with Simi. It is Scott Shunt. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. That's high praise. Best friend. I, well, I Wow. Okay. It's like from the movie Step Brothers. Are we just going to become best friends? We are. I think we just did. That's I think we just perfect. did. I love it. It is. Welcome. Now, for all of the listeners out there, and I will tell you right now, Mornings with Simi listeners are very dedicated. Love them. Tell us about yourself. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I'm a big fan of this show and of you and of this station and uh, have worked- We did not require you to say that to get this job. I, hey, it's, uh, I speak only the truth. I speak only the truth. Um, I've dabbled in, in uh, talk radio at points in my career. I have been working in radio in Vancouver and around the country for, uh, oh man, I'm aging myself here, like close to 20 years. I would say your voice is probably pretty familiar to a lot of local radio listeners. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I've done some radio stuff, and uh, I'm I've done some stuff here at, at CKNW, and uh, most of my career has been working in mornings. So I'm thrilled to be here working so uh, in mornings with you, and to talk about stuff that's going on in this city where I've lived for you know a long time. And yeah, I have a lot of questions for you, Let's so that people them. can get to know you better. Sure. Right. You were uh, raised here. You're from Abbotsford? That's right. Grew up in Abbotsford. High and, school? I uh, went to W.J. Mowat. Nice. I was student body president the year that I graduated, the year 2000. Student body president. Look at us. We have like a high achiever here, don't we? Favorite movie? Uh, wow. Okay. Recently, the one that I s- recommend the most, the one that comes to mind is Parasite. It won Best Picture a couple of Oscars ago. Okay. A few years ago. Yeah. I remember Parasite. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah. Great yeah. Movie. I liked it because it was so uh, jarringly different from everything that I had seen kind of up till then. Okay. So Star Wars or Star Trek? Definitely, definitely Star Wars. Oh, nice. I'm both. I'm more Star Wars than Star Trek, but I appreciate your answer. I like that. Because if we were Star Trek, I had to ask you Kirk or Picard. That's also... Sure. Yeah. My mom was a big Star Trek fan, but she was big into the next generation. So I would say Picard just because of... yeah. Perfect answer, Scott. Perfect answer. (laughs) Sweet or savory? Ah, sweet. Definitely. Interesting. Candy or chocolate? Definitely candy. Oh! See, I'm chocolate. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm well, not a candy person. I, I love candy. I love like uh, like sours and gummies and that type of thing. Okay. Best era for music. And Ooh. there is a right answer. So. Okay. <laughs> I think it would probably depend on what genre we're talking about. So as a kid who grew up in the 90s, uh, I'm kind of in like a 90s hip hop sort of phase. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about hip hop and, and rap music and that type of thing, I would probably say the 90s. Uh, rock music, probably the late 60s, early 70s. See, I would have just accepted the answer, the 1980s. Because that was the era for all genres that I grew up in. All, all of that you just covered, it was all better in the 1980s. Well, yeah, there's sort of this transition, you know. I, I went like 70s to 90s, and then you've got the you, I'm just right the there. 80s. I'll yeah, take the 90s. And here on the show, I think we play a lot of 1980s stuff, too. So you'll learn to love it. You'll, okay. you'll agree with me. Don't worry. Now, our producer, Bianca, wants me to ask you, what's your favorite dinosaur? Uh, okay. Probably the Velociraptor. 
She's so happy right now. Really? Because that's her favorite. Di- I told her there's no right answer, but that was her answer. <laughs> so she's really happy. I just think that I like that uh, the Velociraptor is small and like and bitey. You know, it's small yet aggressive. <laughs> it's fast. It's to the point. Yeah, it gets in. It gets the job done. <laughs> okay. So what else do people need to know about you? They they know, you've got two small kids. Yes, I do. I have a six year old and a two year old, and uh, they're wonderful. They're my whole world, and they keep me so 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 busy. I think. Yesterday, the heat was really getting to them. Um, it was it was a fun day. Don't you have like a little waiting pool for them to sit in to cool them down? So last summer, a friend came over with a dog and the dog jumped in the waiting pool. It's like an inflatable one yeah. and popped it. So this year we have opted to putting the sprinkler underneath the trampoline. That's what they like. And it's, it, the sprinkler goes up sprinkler through the, the, the mesh trampoline. trampoline. Yeah, I'm coming to your house. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, you'll have to fight the two of them for a spot on the trampoline, though. That sounds fantastic. So you are very busy, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Yeah, my wife works full-time as well, so so she's busy. Um, yeah, we, we keep ourselves active. We love living in the city. We hit the beaches, the trails. We ski a lot. Um, yeah, it's, okay. it's a great life. So people need to know then, Scott, what kind of things are you going to be checking out for us? Like, and also, how can they get a hold of you if they want have things that they want you to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm just Scott at cknw.com, S-C-O-T-T at cknw.com. And I am just excited to to dig a little deeper on some of the stuff that, yeah, like matters to me and to, and to my community. I live in North Van and um, there's a lot of things that are going on in, in my world that I'd like to l- know more about. Like, here's just an example off the top of my head, how hard it is to get my kids into swimming lessons, you know, like that's something oh. that I'd like to dive into a little bit more. You are just going to unleash the hounds on that one, right? I have talked to so many parents of kids at like your age it is, and you think about back in the day, like, okay, I'm dating myself here, but swimming lessons were not a big deal. You signed up for them, boom, done. Went, That's yeah. it. Show up, learn how to swim. It sounds like it is now its own competitive sport. Oh my gosh. It's like harder to get tickets or to get your kid into swimming lessons than it is to get tickets to you too. It's insane. Or Taylor Swift. Or Taylor Swift. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So stuff like that. Um, I'm interested in, uh, so a lot of people that are sort of in my age group and my sort of state of life with young kids, it feels like we should be a bit further along than we are. I don't know. I, f- I feel like that's a relatable thing. Cost of housing is a big thing for us. Yet it's it's can be difficult to make a life here in, in the city and in this province, yet we love it so much and we want to stay here. You know, I hear stories about people moving because it's too hard. I don't want to do that. I want to stay here and explore this awesome city. But there's a lot of stuff going on here that, that matters to me. I'm starting to learn more about politics and economics and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I'm a huge music and, and culture fan too, so I hope to do some of that stuff as well. All right, so Scott at cknw.com. And you're going to be exploring your neighborhood too, right, to talk a little bit about that because I know there's all sorts of great stuff going on in North fan uh, like the, that whole new um like district that you've got yeah down shipyards there. The ship i think yards. is what you're talking what, about yeah what is the deal with that yeah so the shipyards has actually been uh recognized for um ba- basically one of the best sort of infrastructure projects that the that the government has has sort of built and i think that that is one of the things that i like so much about living in north van it really feels like uh the city is ahead of the curve for what's coming for young families and young people uh, with projects like the shipyards. Uh, we've got the Great Spirit Trail there. Um, all of the parks and the beaches in North Vancouver. I was telling somebody that I was at Ambleside Beach over the weekend and it just, it felt 
it was so great. There's tons of room. You know, there's restaurants and places to get food. The facilities are set up. There's a basketball court. There's a skateboard park. Uh, there, it's clean. You know, and I'm like, this is this is great. This is a wonderful spot to be. And the shipyards in North Vancouver, if you haven't been there, it feels like that. Uh, it's like a public outdoor ice rink and a meeting place and there's restaurants and there's a boardwalk and there's the, you know, the pier. And it's just a great place for people to gather and to meet and to be and to, you know, I love how you said, I love how you said, and it's clean because like our bar is not very high, right? Right. (laughs) It's clean. That would be nice if it it just stayed clean. It works. It operates. It's not broken. Yeah. That's all we need as a gathering place. That's clean and not broken. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little bit more investigation into that and into how, you know, such great facilities got built and, and, uh, if that's going to continue, you know, in the lower mainland, because I think there are a lot of places that would love to see some, some similar type projects. All right. That sounds good. So, okay. That's our new contributor on the show. You're going to be hearing a lot about Scott. He, welcome to the family. Thank the you. I'm thrilled to be here. Scott at cknw.com. We will be catching up with Scott. Of course, he's now here all the time. We can check in with him anytime we want to. This is Mornings with Simi. Sure isn't the news that so many Canadians have been looking for. It's the fact that WestJet pilots are now going on strike. The union representing some 1,800 pilots at that airline and swoop uh, could be on the picket line as early as Friday morning. They issued strike notice last night. So you're wondering, well, what does this mean for my upcoming travel plans, right? Well, joining us now is Global News reporter Michael King at the Calgary Airport. Michael, thanks for being here. Of course. What can you tell us about where things are at right now when it comes to negotiations? Well, Simi, we really saw this coming about a month ago. Uh, That's when the union representing the WestJet pilots held a strike vote. 93% of those who took part in the vote voted in favor of job action. Last night, as I said, we saw this become a reality. They have now started a 72-hour clock that will end at 2 a.m. Pacific time on Friday. If an agreement isn't reached by then, there's going to be massive disruptions to both WestJet and Swoop flights across the country. This means grounding of almost all aircraft, uh, creating chaos across Canada and abroad. Top issues in terms of contract negotiations, no surprise. Uh, They include job protection, pay and scheduling. The pay one, obviously, uh, a big focus. The union saying that uh, there's about a 45% wage gap in between Canadian pilots and what those south of the border make. They want to see that close up. They realize the airline's not going to come up to meet their demand, but that's at least their starting point. Both sides say they're still at the table. They want to come to a resolution. But again, the 72-hour uh, clock, which is going to tick down at Friday uh, morning, that's, uh, that's ticking right now. Okay. What are people supposed to do then if they've got a, a ticket for an upcoming WestJet flight? So a couple of things you want to do right now if you're booked with WestJet or Scoop. Number one, you want to go into your reservation and make sure your email address and your phone number is linked to your reservation. Getting through to customer service over the next couple of days is probably going to be tough. You're going to want to make sure that the airline can get in contact with you. They're going to either cancel the flight and offer you a refund, or they're going to try and rebook you on another airline, uh, maybe not even affiliated with WestJet. So that's one of those options. The other option, speaking with travel agents here in Calgary, they've been busy for the last week or so going through and booking refundable flights on other airlines. Now, this is if your travel destination, you don't have any flexibility there, you need to get to where you're going, you can go ahead and do that. You just need to be careful because even with those refundable tickets, they usually have to be refunded within a certain period of time, 24, 48 hours. If you miss that cutoff, then you're on the hook for two flights, especially if WestJet doesn't go through with job action. 
So a couple things to keep in mind. The final one is we talk a lot about uh, passenger compensation. Unfortunately, going through the passenger rights code, it shows that a labor uh, negotiation and disruption like this falls outside of the airline's control. So if you're flying domestically, you're likely not going to qualify for compensation. Oh, boy. Okay, people better get on this. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Appreciate that. Michael King, global news reporter at the Calgary Airport. Of course, Calgary is the hub for uh, WestJet and pilots there have issued strike notice. They could be on the picket line as early as Friday morning. Now, that is chaotic. I feel like if there's one thing that the pandemic did teach a lot of us when it comes to travel, uh, it is either A, buy travel insurance or B, get that refundable ticket, right? Buying the base ticket with no money back seems to not be an option anymore for, I think, a lot of us out there. So if you've got the refundable ticket, now's the time to check up on what kind of ticket you have. Uh, as Michael suggested there, log in, find out, make sure all your information is on that account so that they can reach you. But this has the potential to be incredibly messy for so many people who are probably getting ready to travel in the next little while. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of things about artificial intelligence that kind of freak me out. But high up there on the list is the ability of these generative AI-powered tools to do things like Take Photoshop into the stratosphere by creating deep fakes of videos and pictures of public figures, no less. How can we tell what is real and what is not? Where is all of this headed? Joining us is Jeff Hancock. Jeff is the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. Jeff, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, this really kind of freaks me out. How far along are these kinds of tools? These models are pretty far along, and um, we should see pretty serious advances over the next year or so. For example, in my class this year, I'm going to have AI Jeff uh, give a 10-minute guest lecture, uh, all video generated, audio generated, and text created by AI. So it's here. It doesn't look perfect, um, but it will soon. Okay, what are some of the consequences of this? Because I'm thinking if we can't trust what we are watching, how does this change things like giving video evidence or something? Right. I think in the short term, we're going to have some serious trust problems uh, where we will question not only things that are fake, but also stuff that's real. And we've always been able to rely in a lot of ways on video as telling us, okay, that's what happened in the world. That's about to change. So I think in the, in the short term, especially around over the next year or two, uh, there's going to be a lot of disruption in people's faith in the media and things that they're seeing online. I think longer term, you know, two, three, four years out, we'll adjust and adapt, both as humans figuring out what can we trust or not, but also we'll build institutions that will say, okay, we can verify this video or that video. Okay, are we doing that, though? Are we able to, is there something in the video, are there telltale signs that we can point to to say, we know this video is not real? Right, so yes, there's a couple organizations here in the United States anyways that are uh, linking not only academics, but also the online platforms, and then traditional uh, media folks like uh, the Hollywood properties. And the idea there is to do watermarking on, on the one hand, so that's when things are generated by a known authenticated source. And, and then also from a journalism point of view, we will continue to have journalists going out there and, and verifying things and authenticating things, and um, we'll be able to uh, figure out what's real in part from those kinds of institutions and, and journalists. Can the legal system handle these kinds of questions? Oh, great question. The legal system always moves so much slower 
uh, than technology. And I think that's why there's going to be this disruption, especially over the next couple of years, because the legal system won't really be there to help us, at least in the in the first little while as we adapt. And what do you mean it won't be able to help us? Like, w- will we not be able to use video evidence in court? Yeah, I think that might be part of the problem is, you know, how will we use video in court? And then also if, if video is used, say, to uh, defame somebody, then how can we go about verifying whether that was true? So all kinds of, of issues around uh, the law. But, you know, I remain optimistic. I think back to some of the earliest um, footage that was shown in theaters. There's one of my favorites where they show a train uh, coming down the tracks, black and white audiences in the theater. And they all go crazy, like they react in horror, pulling their heads back because they think the train is about to come and hit them. Those humans had never seen, you know, a moving picture before. And I think we're going to be kind of like them for the, for the next year or two. But now when we go to the theaters, we don't think we're about to get blasted out of the sky when we go see Star Wars. So I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> well, that's actually a really good example. You're right. We, I guess we have to keep it in a little bit of perspective here. But it doesn't seem like we're getting much help on the political side of things, are we? Because particularly when we see things in the United States, political parties are already using these kinds of deep fakes in ads and things, aren't they? Uh, sadly, yes, they are. The situation down here is, is really polarized. And it's gotten to a point where it feels like Political operatives are just willing to do anything now. They think that the other side is going to do this, so we might as well do it too. It's um, it's it's not a pleasant uh, situation, and there's not a lot of civility in politics right now. I guess we could argue, though, when it comes to political ads, they've always pushed the envelope, haven't they? They have, and we start to build up our our sort of filters and shields. So now we don't take you know negative advertising you know as face value. We're like, okay, that's an ad. That's these guys just saying bad things about them. Does it still have an impact? Yeah, it makes everybody uh, like everyone less. Uh, but we're not like just sitting there automatically believing everybody. And I think those are the kind of filters we develop when we see new kinds of media. You know, we talked about, you know, legal and, and tech and all that. But what about the media? I mean, aren't, isn't the media also responsible for finding ways to deal with deep fakes? Because we're talking about reporting on stories of events that we think are happening if we've got the video for it. Right, exactly. But, you know, Simi, as you know, a a good journalist is not going to rely on a single source for anything, whether that's video or a phone call. And and just like a good, you know, police investigator, um, journalists, you know, go about trying to authenticate their story by getting confirmation through multiple sources. And I think that's just going to become more and more important. And I think people will come to realize that there are, you know, it may be their favorite journalist, it might be their favorite, you know, uh, platform or, or company. Uh, but they're going to have to rely on them on doing that good investigative work to say, this is something that's real, and here's how I verified that. Right, but that, those things take a little bit of time, right? And, and Oh, right, exactly. Today, yeah. today, the thing is faster, 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 and people want it instantaneously. Right, and there's less and less resources going into to journalism, into that kind of deeper investigative work. So we will have to um, um, you know, solve that problem. I don't know, I don't know how to solve that one. Okay, so as consumers of all of these things, then, what should we be asking, Jeff, when it comes to more and more of these deepfake videos being out there? So first of all, most of the content that somebody sees online is going to be not fake. We We have a sense that everything is misinformation. So the first thing is, if you're on a news source, like say you're a a CBC fan or a Fox News fan or a New York Times fan, whatever, um, 
almost all of what you see will not be fake. And I just want to start there. Uh, most people don't get exposed to a lot of misinformation as they're browsing online. But when somebody sees something that seems too good to be true, it likely is, right? And if your spidey sense is going off, trust that instinct, open up another tab in your browser and use Google or whatever search engine you use to look up that fact. For things that make you suspicious or seem too good to be true, always worth checking with another source. See, that is good advice. Uh, I love that. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Great talking to you. That's Jeff Hancock, who's the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University talking about deep fakes. Some of that stuff sounds pretty scary, right, when he describes it that way. And so we have a lot of work to do uh, for getting a hold of that kind of technology. Still ahead for us on the show this morning, we have a $149 gift card to save on foods to give away, but we also want to update you on what is going on out there in the news, particularly the wildfire situation. There are something like 56 active fires burning around our province, 15 of them considered out of control. So you've got thousands of people out of their homes right now. What's it like for them? We'll find out coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. The entire town of Fort St. John has been placed on evacuation alert. 20,000 people have been told to be prepared to leave their homes at a moment's notice. Gives you an idea of how serious this wildfire situation is right now in our province, right? Never mind what's going on in Alberta. Here in BC, we've got 56 active fires around the province, 15 of them considered to be out of control at this point. As mentioned there, the Red Creek Fire in Fort St. John has been burning for more than a week. So you've got a lot of people, thousands uh, standing by just in case they might have to leave their homes. And that is not an easy situation, right? Like we've come to hear about that over, you know, the last few years. It's gotten so bad when it comes to wildfires in the summertime. And here in Metro Vancouver, we're a bit spoiled, right? Because we don't know what it's like to live under conditions like that necessarily. But, you know, in other parts of this province, that is a yearly reality. Just take what happened in Lytton a couple of years ago. That was just 2021, that extreme heat that we all experience. But in Lytton, it broke the all-time heat record across the entire country. They had a temperature of 49.6 degrees. That was on June 29th. And then the fire came and so many people lost their homes, including our next guest. We wanted to learn more about what it is like to live through a situation like this. Ken Pite is with us now, a resident of Lytton. Ken, thanks for being here. No, you're welcome, Simi. How are things for you right now? For, where are you staying? Right now, I'm uh, just above Lytton at a friend of mine's place. Uh, yeah, looking and out over the town. What is the rebuilding situation like for you? Well, it hasn't started yet. Uh, yes, that's, <laughs> that's it in a few words. Oh. No rebuilding yet. Okay, so do you know where it is in the process? Uh, well, there's still quite a bit of work to do. Um, the town has been scraped down about a foot, uh, everything removed. So now new soil has to be brought in so that we can start getting it green again. That's a lot of work. Ken, when you think back two years ago, do you, it must have been so chaotic. Is it difficult for you to think when you think about all these other people who are kind of undergoing a similar situation now? Oh, my heart goes out to them. It, uh, you know, we're, we're living in a situation now where the forests are increasingly stressed. Uh, rainfall patterns are all haywire. 
And unfortunately, we have more fires to look forward to. Was this something that you had prepared for? Had you ever gone through this before? I'd never gone through it before, no. So what did you do when the order came in? Well, there was no order came in. Um, It caught us all completely by surprise. Um, I was aware that morning that we were in a very difficult situation. You know, the phrase, a powder keg, was literally true. And, uh, you know, I got a few things ready by the door just in case. And then in the afternoon, sitting inside the house, doors and windows closed, I smelled smoke really strongly. And that was the warning. And so you just decided, I'm going? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it was obvious that everything was going to burn. Wow. And, and when did you first notice, like, something was really wrong? To I understand, when that heat happened on June the 29th, did you notice changes in your property and, like, the foliage and things? Uh, well, that morning of the fire, I went out early while it was still, you know, relatively cool to pick some raspberries, and they were dead. They'd just been killed by the heat. And uh, the fresh green leaves of next year's growth were so brittle I could crumble them in my fingers. And it was that point I went... Look out. We're only going to get through this if nobody is stupid. Wow. And you did manage to make it out, but that must have been so chaotic in the days after. You would think that the governments are used to this by now and dealing with this, Ken, but what is the system like when it comes to helping people like you? Well, I think it's still in its infancy on how to deal with people in this kind of situation Uh, We have sort of the categories of people with, you know, guaranteed replacement insurance, people with uh, insufficient insurance, and people with no insurance. And so uh, how do we, um, you know, provide homes for, you know, people with no insurance? Uh, It has to be done because otherwise they will be, you know, people in that position will be looking for, for help, and that will need to be supplied at, at some cost to society. So, you know, how can we, you know, I guess the real question is, is like, when this happens to you, how do you want to be treated? And I think that's a question for all of us in this province. That's a good question, too. So do you want to rebuild? And if you do, will you do things differently? Are there things that you can do at your house to do things differently? I want to rebuild. Uh, and... I mean, what I would like very much is to have, um, you know, a lush property where, you know, the greenery is the first or one of the lines of resistance to any future fires. That seems to be the case when I look around here, places that survived were places that had lots of water and uh, lots of greenery. Interesting. Well, listen, good luck, Ken. Uh, Best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome, Simi. Thanks for calling. That is Ken Pite, who's a Lytton resident, even though Lytton doesn't exist anymore. It will be, though. And Ken wants to go back. They are waiting to rebuild their community. Of course, destroyed in a fire almost two years ago with that really intense heat that we had. And I'd forgotten like that temperature, just even saying it out loud, that on June the 29th of 2021, it was 49.6 degrees in Lytton. Just ugh, can't even imagine how awful that must have been. And we have lots of people under fire alert right now, too. So for the latest on that, keep it tuned in here, plus cknw.com for more information as well. 
This is Mornings with Simi. I didn't recognize the report that the uh, reporter was describing to me, but I am familiar with that report. Uh, it was described to me as a report uh, into what had happened under our government at BC Housing. In fact, it's what happened under the BC Liberal government, um, which is an important uh, detail that was missing. Okay, so obviously there's more to come on this story, right? So an update for you on the whole BC housing story and the situation. Uh, the CEO of nonprofit housing provider Atira has now stepped down. Remember, Janice Abbott had been under a lot of pressure to do just that after the Premier and the Housing Minister released that Ernst & Young report showing alleged conflicts of interest between Abbott and her husband, the former CEO of BC Housing. But not everyone is satisfied with how things have unfolded here. Remember how the former board of BC Housing was replaced a year ago because, according to Premier David Eby, they didn't act fast enough on the concerns. Well, one of those board members, the former board members, is with us now. It's Perry Stanisha, who's a former director of BC Housing. Uh, Perry, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Simi. How are you feeling about how the last few weeks have unfolded here? Well, it's unfortunate that the whole housing sector uh, had to be dragged through the mud like this and uh, uh, by the premier self-sabotaging one of his own crown corporations that was uh, growing immensely, but was being uh, governed, in my opinion, uh, very well by uh, the board of directors comprised of um, a bunch of professionals uh, versus, uh, quote, volunteers, as the premier has said the last week. Okay, so the concerns that were outlined in that report, though, did any of the board members have any of those concerns, see any of those concerns? Of course we did. And absolutely, that, that's our job as uh, governing any board, any crown corporation is uh, nose out. Uh, don't get, get involved in the day-to-day operations of the business, but um, um, uh, fingers out, nose in, be curious about things. And of course we were concerned. Okay, so then what happened? Well, what happened is um, David Eby basically uh, told us, uh, gave us a mandate. You, you do what I want or, um, you know, um, see what happens. And we were fired at the end of that week because we didn't comply with his requirements. Okay, so Perry, let me go back to your concerns then. So if you had concerns, what did the board do about those concerns? Those concerns were, were well underway, under control. Um, and we're being dealt with by the board. What, what we did is we reviewed the allegations. Uh, we didn't feel that uh, the allegations that were put forward would uh, test the stand of time. Um, if, for example, the CEO or others um, would take the Crown Corporation uh, to court over wrongful dismissal, for example. So we had a plan in place. We already had a call in to commission an expert in Victoria, actually, that specializes in doing investigations of this sort that would uh, give us a report back um, if in case there was um, wrongdoings um, that would stand up in a, in a court. So and Perry- if not, then that would vindicate the uh, allegation. So at that time, that was our plan. And that was uh, quashed by the premier. OK, so the allegations that you had that you were concerned about were they the same or similar to what we see in the final report? It's the same concerns that's been going on since the day the CEO, the two CEOs got married in 2010. Um, no different. The same concerns. Okay. They've been muddling around in, in the public for, for years and years and years. We had those concerns. Uh, one of the ways we dealt with those was by strengthening 
the conflict of interest protocol. That was a page and a half. We strengthened that to 10 pages. The CEO agreed to sign that. And we strengthened that. In right. addition to that, we, we were on our way to uh, commissioning uh, an investigation. Okay, but Perry, given what we now see in the Ernst Young report, that this was clearly being circumvented, that text messages were being deleted, that there was no protocol being followed, don't you look back on that and think, geez, maybe, maybe we should have dug a little harder? We don't know that. We, we don't know that uh, those text messages were, were real. We don't know any of that. There were a lot of uh, things in the most current report. For example, names were not named. We don't even have the name of the author of the report, as an example. Um, the report is highly flawed. Okay, so are you saying that that didn't happen? Because it clearly lays it all out and nobody has contested that. Like Shane Ramsey hasn't come forward to say that didn't happen. Janice Abbott has not come forward to say that didn't happen. So are you saying it didn't happen? We as a board did not have unequivocal evidence that that did happen. We were on our way to investigating those allegations. What about the sense of urgency that has, the Premier has said was a problem here, that they were afraid that evidence would go away, that there would be a cover-up? Like, what about all of that? Well, we did get a legal opinion on the allegations that were put forward by the province, and legal opinion unequivocally uh, advised the board to not proceed on that basis and to, to make sure that we follow the proper steps in doing a proper investigation. And we would have had this wrapped up by the end of October. But Perry, can you not understand the public's frustration in this? Because as you just said, you were, there were concerns from 2010, from the moment these two got married. And now you're saying that you needed more time to figure out what was going on? Well, uh, David Eby took nine months to get this most recent report out. We would have had this wrapped up by the end of October of last year because we had already put a phone call into the investigator in Victoria to deal with this. Right. But you also were the board member for many years while this was happening. Uh, I was a board member from uh, 2018 to July 2022. Yes. Okay. Does it not make you a little bit angry, though, Perry, when you do think about, like, was this happening and why weren't you told? Like, how do you feel about the fact that you may have missed a lot of this? Well, we didn't miss anything. We were aware of it and we were well underway in dealing with the issue until the premier interfered in our role. Our, our role as, as a governing board is to provide proper oversight, strong oversight, and we have one employee under our employment, and that's a CEO. So we pay particularly, atten- particularly strong attention to the CEO and um, our actions. And we have to be very diligent in hiring, disciplining, and potentially firing the CEO. Do you think leadership change was needed at BC Housing? A year ago, if somebody had said that to you and you, you had initial information, what would you have said? Back then, um, absolutely not, pending the investigation and the outcome of where we were headed as a board. When that investigation came in, that could have been a different story. But at the time, we did not have that information. But Perry, what do you say to people who think this sounds an awful lot like you guys were just kicking the can down the road here? We were doing our job as paid professionals until there was political interference uh, for political gain and not throwing, not only throwing people under the bus, but also throwing the Crown Corporation under the bus and the entire housing sector. 
putting a cloud over the entire housing sector. But Perry, there's so many questions about how taxpayer money was being spent. I think the general public would like to know what the heck was going on. Absolutely. I, I have no dispute with that. I'm a taxpayer as well. And that would have all come out with our investigation. And we would have had that wrapped up from um, Would you have made it public, year? though? That's my question. Would BC Housing, and it's been so hard for the media to get answers out of BC Housing, would you have made it public? If there was a departure of the CEO required last fall because of our investigation, of course that would have been made public. Absolutely. The reasons for that about everything that was going on, text messages going behind the scenes, you're telling me that your report, you would have made that public? Uh, Yes, we would have. We would have uh, looked into that and um, we would have made that public. We're a crown corporation and I think the public has a right to know that. it's, It's not about the issue. It's about the process and the interference in having taken it to this point all this time. Right. Well, Perry, I'm sorry. Count me skeptical of it on this one because the board had a long time to deal with these issues and they were not dealt with. Well, the phase one of the issue we dealt with through the conflict of interest protocol. There is not one incident at the board level or any of the committee levels that uh, the CEO did not comply with the CEO uh, with a COI conflict of interest protocol. We, we had not experienced that. Number two, not one staff person at BC Housing came forward with any of these allegations. But we know there was a whistleblower. The report says there was a whistleblower. How do you know that? Who was the whistleblower? Well, we protect whistleblowers, don't we? Did you need to know the name and everything, or did you not want to act on the information? Uh, well, there's a lot of flaws in the report. Names are not named. The author of the report has not been named. And so on. Perry, I'm sorry, you're going to have to color me skeptical on this one, but I appreciate your time and coming on the show this morning. That is Perry Stanisha, the one of the former board members of BC Housing, uh, was removed from that post a year ago by uh, then Housing Minister David Eby. You can see why this is still going around in circles, right? A lot of contentious issues here. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So a few housing-related items this morning that we want to talk about. Remember when we talked about the BC eviction map being done by First United that shows how many people have been evicted from their homes in this province and why? So that's obviously on the list. Plus the ongoing situation with BC Housing. So we just spoke with a former board member of BC Housing, not happy with the allegations that the former board didn't do enough to manage the relationship between the BC Housing CEO and his wife, the now former CEO of Atira. In other words, there are a lot of housing-related issues to catch up on with Housing Minister Ravi Kalan, who joins us now. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Let me start with the the former board member of BC Housing that we had on and and the fact that we've now heard that Janice Abbott is stepping down as CEO of Atira. What was your reaction to that? Well, I think it's a positive step by the board. Uh, We made it clear that uh, in the public interest to ensure that there was confidence uh, that uh, we had confidence in, in Atera, there needed to be some changes in leadership. I know initially there was a little bit of resistance, but I think once they had a chance to fully go through the report, uh, I think the uh, it was pretty clear that they had to take some action, and I'm pleased that they did. Okay, and, and the former board member that we spoke to as well feels that the former board just needed more time to deal with that. What do you say? 
Well, I mean, with all due respect uh, to the former board member and, and to the many people involved, I mean, there, there's two things that are clear. One, there was whispers of this happening since 2012. Um, and uh, and I think if, from the public, it's, it's fair to say why did it take so long for anything to happen. And second, it was clear from the report that, that, that individuals were going to great lengths to hide this from the board, from uh, from the public, from government, but also from their fellow co-workers. And so uh, as much as I uh, appreciate the frustration from former board members, um, the, the reality is is that when information is brought to you it's, and it's clear, uh, action needs to be taken. In this case, Premier Eby saw some information, said this is unacceptable, went to an outside organization, uh, went to the um, Office of the Controller General, brought in a forensic investigation team from Ontario to do the work, and we have the report we have. And so in the end, for me, it's about ensuring two things. One, that uh, when something like this happens, that there's uh, a full investigation done. And second, that it's released in a very transparent way, and both these things happen. Okay, so do you feel like, given the developments then in the last 24 hours, that a page has been turned now? I do. I think so. Um, you know, we've got now uh, from BC Housing, the CEO is gone. The CFO is gone. We have a, we have a new board uh, from Atera. We have leadership change uh, from, from the top. Uh, we will still need to do the audit. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to know uh, and be assured that uh, all the dollars sent to Atera were spent in, in an appropriate way. We still will need to do the uh, inspection, site-by-site inspection. But I think it does open up Atera to be able to uh, apply in, 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 in a competitive process with all other not-for-profits when contracts come up. And so I think it's a, it's a, a positive step from the board, and I really appreciate them uh, doing the right thing. Uh, let's talk about evictions here, too, because that was the other issue that we wanted to discuss with you. Uh, and that is, we learned from that eviction map that was done by First United that there's an awful lot of landlord use evictions going on. What was your reaction to that? Well, the report had uh, two sides of it. One, I think some of the media reports saying eviction capital uh, is in British Columbia across the country, I think was a little bit of a stretch, given that the report didn't look at any other province and only interviewed, I think, 400 people um, part of this report. Now, the flip side is uh, I do think the issue is a real one. We spent a considerable amount of time last year addressing rent evictions. And you'll remember it was a hot topic. The changes we made, I think, addressed that. Um, But the report does speak to the fact that a majority of landlords are good people, are are following the rules. But we have some who continuously find ways to um, uh, find loopholes and, and make it really hard for for their tenants. And so we're going to have to, part of our housing strategy, we actually had already signaled that we were looking at potential solutions and we're going to have to explore everything to ensure that landlords have the opportunity if they want to move into a space, but at the same time, it's not you know being exploited to uh, uh, make more vulnerable people even more vulnerable. How do we do that though? Because people will say that they don't, they, they try to file a complaint and there's the backlog and the system. So how do you, how do you do those things? Well, well, the backlog has been uh, already starting to be addressed. I mean, we uh, increased the amount of resources by 40% in December. We're seeing wait times already starting to drop, uh, which is positive. And I suspect by the end of the year, uh, we'll be in, in a more better shape than certainly where we have been uh, in, the, in the last uh, few years coming out of the pandemic. But I think that 
the, the core of the challenge here is that not every landlord is out there doing this, that there are some. I, I've heard uh, a story of uh, one landlord who has uh, 30 units in a building and he's going unit by unit trying to get rid of folks. And the, one of the things that we put in place at the RTV was an uh, enforcement team, which has the ability to go in early and talk to landlords or talk to tenants uh, and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're, you're probably outside of the rules of what you're doing. So we've been trying to do that whenever issues arise, but we are looking at what other jurisdictions are doing to help address this situation, and we'll have more uh, once we've got that, uh, that policy uh, developed. Okay, so you can see more action being taken here. Yeah, I think it's clearly some action needs to be taken. Uh, but again, I think it's important to have that balance between uh, if a person has a suite and they need it for a friend, family member and it's genuine, that they be able to do that and uh, and not have it as an opportunity for some landlords to say, I'm going to get rid of everybody because their rent is a couple hundred dollars lower than what I can be getting. And and so we'll be looking to find that balance in the, in the work we do. Is there a balance for that? Like, how is that dealt with in other jurisdictions? Well, there other, there's a whole range. Some jurisdictions require uh, the landlord when they're evicting to provide some basic information about uh, who's coming in so that uh, a follow-up can happen. And some jurisdictions go to a, a more extreme uh, and not allow th- this type of thing to happen. And so, uh, you know, I think we have to find a, a mix so that if somebody does want to have a family member move in, that they be able to do so. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to go to a place where, you know, a, a landlord can't just get rid of somebody if they if they need the space genuinely for their family. So, again, uh, we're looking at other jurisdictions and uh, we'll have more to say once that policy is uh, defined. All right. More to come then. Thank you so much for your time. OK, thanks, Jimmy. Take care. You too. That is Ravi Kailan, B.C.'s Minister of Housing. So there is more to come on that. But it's a good question to ask you there, too. Like, where is that balance? If you're a landlord and you want to move family in, sure, you should have the right to be able to do that. If you're a landlord, though, and you're just saying that so you can hike up the rent, how do we put something in place, you know, to to deal with situations like that? But clearly from the eviction map that we heard about from First United, it is happening a lot. Landlords saying, oh, I need this for personal use and then not actually using it for personal use. So what, where's the balance there? This is Mornings with Simi. Safety in our hospitals and healthcare facilities. This has rapidly become a big concern in our system. We have the story from the weekend, right? About the violence at Surrey Memorial Hospital, all the concern that caused. And then you've got that open letter from emergency room doctors warning of unsafe conditions at the same facility. They're worried about, you know, overcrowding, what they call bed blocks. They just say it's not a safe situation. So, of course, we are talking with Health Minister Adrian Dix about that this morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Okay, let's start with this letter at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Like, how do you respond to what some of those ER doctors have to say? Oh, that uh, it's absolutely the case that uh, the census, the number of people in the hospital in BC, is at a high level. It's about uh, yesterday is about nine thousand five hundred and thirty-seven, which is significant. In Surrey, it's about twelve over the base bed capacity, although we have surge capacity there. But the issue they're talking about is the relationship between the emergency room and what happens on the wards. We're right now in discussions and negotiations over contracts with what are called hospitalists who provide support to patients on the wards. Why is that important to people? It's important because you need to have that care on the wards available to get people out of the hospital when they're admitted as patients. So these are issues we're working on with our doctors, uh, with our nurses, with our health sciences professionals 
to see that they're improved just as we did uh, the discussions with doctors over over uh, family uh, family medicine, the discussions with our nurses over nursing burnout. We're going to continue to work with people and resolve these problems. Okay, how soon would that be able to happen, though? It does sound like it's at a, a bit of a tipping point there. No, I think it's been at, at this level for a while. Uh, we had about, uh, you'll remember in January, and I was on the show talking about it, we had at its height about 10,260 people in the hospital. Yesterday it was 95,37. The challenge for doctors is, that it's been consistently high for a long time. So their doctors will tell you and nurses and others and all the staff who work in emergency rooms that if it's always high or relatively high, there's no respite from that. And that creates a long-term challenge. On the issue of security, because you raised the issue of security, we're putting in place a new security model that was recommended by our healthcare workers, including nurses and healthcare workers and doctors. Uh, we're adding 320 security staff. All the leads have been hired. We're on track to bring this uh, into place as committed. And I think that will make an important difference. So we're taking all of these steps with respect to the discussions with hospitalists. Those discussions are ongoing. We had a new uh, proposal last Friday that they're considering. And uh, we're very respectful, of course, of, um, of their concerns. And we're working with them to resolve them. What has happened to the system then that it is operating at that high level, as you point out, you know, from the beginning of this year right till now? Well, that's not the system. That's an increase in demand for healthcare across the board. We have, of course, a very significant increase in population in BC. That's a small part of it. The pandemic had an impact on our health that goes beyond the direct impact of the pandemic. And we sometimes, I think, forget this, that this period also uh, also had an impact on people's overall health in innumerable ways, which we can maybe talk about at another show, which has increased the level of people in the healthcare system. So you can look at it two ways. The healthcare system is doing more surgeries, record number of surgeries, reducing the surgical wait list, doing more diagnostic exams, more emergency visits, more family doctor visits. All of that is true, but the demand is higher. So this isn't just a system issue. It's an issue um, of the challenges facing people in BC, and we're, uh, we're working hard to respond to them in new ways, in different ways, you saw that yesterday, and also uh, also by adding services and adding supports. You mentioned about yesterday, so that's about the, the cancer patients being sent down to Bellingham uh, for that. Let me ask, I know you talked as well about this. Has this happened in the past within our system? I did have some emails from people who saying they, they do remember this happening before. It, it has happened before. So the situation is this. Um, uh, people are waiting too long for one part of cancer therapy, which is radiation therapy. We have a number of machines that have to be replaced this year as well, which puts more pressure on the system and their health human resources demands, particularly for what are called radiation therapists. So my view is we're going to resolve this problem. But in the meantime, we shouldn't have cancer patients waiting too long. So this is an effort to add about 2,000 radiation therapy uh, people through the radiation therapy system this year, which will allow us to reduce wait lists. And I think people uh, understand it's unusual, but it's something we need to do to provide people the care they need when they need it. And that's uh, what we're going to continue to do. Right. So not obviously everybody will be able to go down. That won't be an option for everyone. So how will people be chosen to go to Bellingham to get that treatment? Well, uh, of course, they will choose to go to Bellingham too. It will be offered. But what we're doing in certain categories of care, and I think it's important, is offering uh, radiation therapy um, uh, in Bellingham to people. And if they take it up, it will probably mean they'll get that radiation therapy quicker. And that's the idea of this. So we're offering it right now for two categories of cancer, prostate cancer and breast cancer. And I, I know people, and I think you do as well, Simi, 
who need uh, radiation. Mm-hmm. And what they want to do is start as soon as possible. So a week or two weeks is either a week of waiting or it's a week of action. And what we're putting in place for an additional 2,000 people is the opportunity to get that done sooner. And that will also mean more space in the system here in BC for all the other patients as well. Okay. And I know you turn your attention to areas that need work, like you were just saying there. Is the BC Cancer Agency one of those areas? Well, we have a, We just put in place a 10-year cancer plan, which is, I think, a significant uh, change. There's been an underinvestment in cancer, and there was uh, for a good number of years before I became Minister of Health. So what are we doing? Uh, four new cancer centers are going to come online. That's going to take a while. We're going to go from 30,000 diagnoses cancer to 45,000 in the next 12 years. That means we have to rise to meet that demand. That's why we're adding new centers. Our health human resources plan is focused on bringing in more oncologists and radiation therapists to meet that demand as well. We've significantly improved the salaries we pay to our oncologists to go ahead of all the other provinces as part of this recruitment campaign. The same with radiation therapists and technicians. So we're taking all of the actions, health human resources, investing in the capital we need, and yes, in this case, taking an interim step to make sure that um, people who have cancer today, you know, on May, uh, May the 18th, that those people uh, are getting uh, better access to care. So that's the approach of the 10-year cancer plan. It's a major change in investment, and we're going to have to uh, not just improve the system and meet this demand, an aging population and more people with cancer, more people surviving cancer for longer, which is great news but also we have to ensure that the system's there to support them. And, uh, and we have to take this action now. So that's exactly what we're doing and why we have a 10-year cancer plan. And so in that cancer plan, you mentioned the new cancer centers. Where are those going to be opening? Well, um, of course, they're part of the second Surrey hospital. So Surrey is an area that, that right now uh, and over in the past has been one of the youngest communities in BC. By 2035, 36, Surrey is going to meet the provincial average in terms of age. In other words, there's going to be significantly more older people and more age-related cancer. So we're adding a second cancer center in Surrey, new cancer center attached to the Burnaby Hospital, Kamloops, Nanaimo. All right, lots of work to be done. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey, take care. Talk to you soon. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, with a lot of information there, right, about what is going on in our system. And I appreciate that information because, yeah, when it comes to something like this, the devil is in the details of that. Talking about the concerns at Surrey Memorial Hospital, once again, a lot of this takes time and money. And so the negotiations there with the people who help the transition for people who go from the emergency room to the ward, uh, those negotiations are ongoing. He said there was an offer presented Friday. That has to be sorted out so they can get more people in there to do that work, leading to alleviation of some of the burden that you've got there, which is clearly causing a strain in the system, right? And as for the cancer situation, If you've had that in your family, then you know the priority one is getting the treatment. If you get that diagnosis, I think most people feel like, I want to start treatment tomorrow. Like, let's get this show on the road here. So if that means that some people will go to Bellingham for that, then fine, do it, get it done. Important thing is to get people healthy there. It's not the easiest or best solution, but hey, it's better than waiting, right? 